Good morning. My name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here. We're going to spend the next few moments uh, looking at God's Word together. So if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 16? And if you don't have a Bible, there's a blue Bible at the end of the row, and you can uh, follow along there if you want, and you can find Luke 16 on page 876 in um, one of those blue Bibles. This, uh, we are in the middle, last week we started a series called Why? And um, over the summer, I had invited anybody who wanted to to submit questions, and uh, we're in the middle of this five-week series called Why? that is based on questions that you have submitted. And um, one of the reasons that we're doing this series is because um, this is what it looks like to be a vulnerable church. Uh, one of the things that we've said is that we want to be, uh, that we want to characterize us as a church is vulnerability, um, that we don't have it all together. And, um, uh, and part of what that looks like is being willing to come to God and say, God, I don't know. Um, I have questions. I have doubts. Um, and so we want our church to be a safe place to, um, to explore those doubts. Uh, to, we want to be a church that doesn't assume that everybody agrees with us. Um, we want to be a church where we don't assume that everybody believes uh, in the Bible or uh, in the truths or all of the truths presented in the Bible. Um, but we also believe that part of being vulnerable means being willing to, God, uh, we looked at last week, God says in Isaiah 1, come let us reason together. Like, let's sit down and let's talk about it. Uh, and so we believe that we can be a church where we can share our doubts and our fears and our questions and we can talk about them. And that really that's part of what it looks like to be a community, that we can work through our doubts and our questions in community. And that's why we're here as a church. So uh, we are going to take on a, a, a tough one this morning. So I'm going to read Luke um, 16, starting in verse 19, and then we will um, talk about it together. So if you would, would you stand with me as we read God's word in Luke 16, starting in verse 19. Jesus is telling this parable. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus, Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, in hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, but Lazarus in like manner received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And beside all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. 
And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? God, we, um, we come to your word with various degrees of confidence, various degrees of enthusiasm, but when we come to a, a difficult passage like this and with the, uh, the, the questions that um, provoke it, God, we do so uh, soberly. And yet we, um, I pray that we would do so with hope, that we would see Jesus and even in the awful reality of hell, that we would be um, more moved by the depth of Jesus' sacrifice for us. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Okay, so this morning we're looking at the question of hell. Um, If you are here for the first time, I just want to say that I've been a pastor for like 12 years. This is the first time I have ever preached a sermon on hell. Um, I'm tempted to, uh, let me, the, the questions, the, there were a few questions submitted regard, related to hell. Um, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? Does God really choose who goes to heaven and hell? Could someone be redeemed from hell after death? Um, I'm tempted to make light of this by saying something like, if you're live tweeting this morning, you might want to use hashtag, oh hell. Um, <laughs> All week, I've kind of struggled with how to, how to introduce this sermon. Um, I hesitate to give away my secrets, but usually I like to start with something kind of lighthearted, something personal if possible, and something self-deprecating. I don't have too many lighthearted, self-deprecating stories about hell. So I thought I'd start with a joke, okay? So there was a, uh, there was a businessman, and he was opening a new location in his business, a new store. And a friend of his wanting to congratulate and celebrate with him uh, sent a bouquet of flowers. And the bouquet uh, arrives at this new store and the businessman opens the, uh, gets the flowers and opens the card. And the card says, may you rest in peace. And uh, kind of shocked and, and um, confused at this obvious mix up, he called the florist who sent the flowers. And he said, explain to the florist what had happened. The florist listened and was you know, very polite and let the businessman express his, you know, offense. Why did you send me this rest in peace card? And uh, the, the florist apologized and said, I'm very, very sorry, but you have, to, you have to think about the, you know, the irony of this situation, that somewhere right now, there is a funeral going on. And at that funeral, there is a family opening a card, and when they open the card, they will read a message that says, congratulations on your new location. <laughs> Silly, I know. <clears throat> That's the punchline, okay? Um, the reason I start with this is because I think it illustrates some of the reason why it's hard for us to talk about hell. There's a lot of reasons why it's hard for us to talk about hell, but one reason it's really hard for us to talk about hell is because I think practically in the day to day, most of us don't actually believe that there is a place called hell. Um, You know, hell, really? Are there still people that believe that that's a real thing? Um, When someone dies, what do we say? Um, We're going to miss Bob, but he's in a better place now, right? 
that's the automatic assumption. We have this um, assumption that there probably isn't a place called hell, but if there is, almost nobody or nobody or almost nobody goes there. Um, we think that there might be like one guy named Adolf wandering around all by himself in hell, and nobody else is really going to be there with him. Um, that's the only dude that ever made it to hell. It's really hard to get there, we think. And, um, you know, hell, really, haven't we gotten rid of the old-fashioned, antiquated idea that there's a God, that he's angry with people, that he's going to punish people, that there's a place where people will live forever in conscious torment? Do we really believe in hell? Um, Even for Christians, like, do we believe that there is a place called hell? Moreover, for many who are not Christians... Probably for many who are Christians, hell seems inconsistent with the idea that there is a uh, that God is a God of love. If God is a God of love, why would He send anyone to hell? Um, many people think it's not just inconsistent to believe that a God of love would send anybody to hell, but that a belief in the concept of hell is not is not just inconsistent, but it's actually dangerous. Um, if you many th- people think if you believe that someone will go to hell after they die you will inevitably um, view them as inferior. And therefore, um, the belief in hell will lead inevitably to violence or to oppression. In 2005, Rick Warren, who is the pastor of a small little church that you may have heard of, uh, was, he was speaking at a conference and he, um, he was being grilled by a bunch of journalists about his belief in hell. And um, a journalist was saying to him that surely anyone with this belief that there are people, that there is a hell, and that there are people who will go there, it would lead inevitably um, to viewing those people who are going to hell as um, not full citizens. I didn't say that very well, but you understand that how, if you believe that there's a hell and there are people who are going there, how can you treat those people as American citizens or, you know, citizens of whatever nation, but equal uh, in dignity and worthy of respect and value? And the uh, journalist suggested that anyone with this belief would view such people as unequal, and therefore this belief would lead to division, exclusion, and even abuse and violence. So what do you have to say about that, Pastor? Well, surely in light of all of this, it's tempting to say, well, let's just just leave the idea of hell behind, right? Or if we can't fully leave the idea of hell behind, could we at least please agree to just not talk about it, okay? Let's just, it'll just be the thing that we just know is there and we don't talk about, right? Well, this morning we're going to talk about hell. And um, I want to start by saying, acknowledging that what the Bible says about hell is awful, um, Francis Schaeffer was a uh, influential Christian in the 20th century. He was a speaker and a, uh, a writer, apologist, and he was once asked by his students, supposedly anyway, he was asked by his students to talk about hell. And when he, they asked him to talk about hell, he just began to weep. And for many, many minutes, you know, couldn't compose himself to actually say anything and just began to weep because what the Bible says about hell is awful. Um, we think of, the Bible speaks of in places of hell as, I mean, it mentions it in this passage, um, of kind of a lake of fire, of flames. 
Um, I think that we have to probably acknowledge that, that that's probably a metaphor, and that it's a metaphor for something that in reality is much worse. What the Bible says about hell is awful, and yet um, it's not awful for the reasons that we think that it that we might think it's awful. It's not awful because God has this skeleton in His closet. And we're just going to ignore it because if we're forced to open that closet and acknowledge what's really in there, what we're going to see is that God is this angry, awful, terrible monster. That's not why what the Bible says about hell is awful. The reason that what the Bible says about hell is awful is because it shows us the potential that each of us has. And we typically think of the word potential as like the potential for good. But what the Bible and what this passage is going to show us is that there is potential in each of us for horrible, horrible, awfulness. Um, l- let me put it to you this way. Who do you, who do you think you are? Like, who, who are you really? Um, when I think about who am I really, um, I tend to think that, like, the best version of me, or, or that the real me is the best version of me. Does that make sense? Like, the real me is the best version of me, and I haven't fully grown into the real me yet, but that's the real me. And there's this other me that's kind of, I'm trying to always, like, kind of hold down and, and not let him come to the surface. Um, but, you know, every once in a while it happens, but that's not the real me, and I'm outgrowing that. But what if the awful me, this other version of me, this version of me I don't want anybody else to see, grows and grows and grows until that's the only me that there is left? See, that's what the Bible says is hell. The worst possible version of myself being all that remains. Several years ago, I heard Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, talk about hell. And I'm relying on him heavily in this sermon. Um, because uh, what we're going to see, the teaching of C.S. Lewis kind of channeled through Tim Keller, explaining this passage, um, it opens our eyes to what the Bible actually says about hell. How can a loving God send people to hell? If we really understand what the Bible says about hell, what we'll actually see is this, that belief in what the Bible says about hell is necessary to understand a God of love. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but apart from a, what the Bible says about hell, we don't actually have a God of love. And apart from what the Bible says about hell, it's impossible for us to live in peace in this world. Now, how is that possible? Well, stick with me because I want you to see two things in this passage that the Bible says about hell. And I just want it really simple this morning. What is this passage, uh, what does the Bible teach us? Um, sorry, what does hell teach us about ourselves? And then what does hell teach us about God, okay? What does hell teach us about ourselves, and what does hell teach us about God? So first of all, what hell teaches us about ourselves? In, uh, in Luke 16, we read this parable. Uh, a parable is a, uh, is a story. It's a, it's, a, you know, it's a story that Jesus told. It's not a, a historic account. It's a story with a point. And he tells this story about a rich man and a poor man. And the one thing that you notice immediately is that there are two men in this passage, but only one of them has a name. Um, There's the rich man and there's Lazarus. And that might not immediately strike you as significant, but in all of the, Jesus told dozens of parables. And in all of the parables, Lazarus is the only uh, character in a parable that is actually given a name. So that's not an accident. 
Um, if there are two men in this parable and one has a name, you'd expect that both of them do. Or if only one's given a name, you'd think it would be the rich man, the important man, right? So what is Jesus telling us um, in this parable? Well, what do we know about the rich man? I mean, what, the thing we know is that he's rich, right? Um, he lived, he had a life of privilege, of status, of wealth, and of comfort. He's rich. And uh, at that time in ancient Israel, it would be, it's impossible to think that a, a wealthy man with status and friends and all that comes with it, like it's impossible to imagine that he would be an atheist, right? Uh, the rich man believed in the God of the Bible. The rich man, um, he probably prayed to the God of the Bible. To varying degrees, he probably obeyed the laws of the God of the Bible. And yet when Jesus tells this story about him, he's in hell without a name. And we see why in verse 25. Abraham says to him, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. He says, you've already had your good things. Um, you've built a life on what you believe is meaningful and significant, and you have found your identity in that. And it's past tense now. You've had them. He's saying, Jesus is saying, whatever you build your life on, whatever gives your life meaning, that thing will control and direct the course of your life. And this rich man had his good things. It's over. His status, his wealth was the basis of his identity, and now it's gone and he has no name. There's no him left. And he's in hell now. Um, and did you notice, like, he's in hell... <laughs> What's left of him? I mean, he's in hell and Lazarus is in heaven, but he still thinks that his comfort is the most important thing. Right? He says, I'm thirsty. <laughs> like, bring me something to drink. Lazarus is in heaven and he's in hell and he still thinks he can boss Lazarus around. Hey, send Lazarus, that little servant of mine, make him come and do something for me. What's going on? He still thinks that he's in control because that's what he's built his identity on. Um, what we see is this. Hell is not this horrible place that God sends people who break his rules. Hell is the extension of the human heart into eternity. The human heart that is based on anything other than Jesus. It's the extension of that identity into eternity, into infinity. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. Uh, he said, Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever. And that assertion must either be true or false. Now, there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I were only going to live for 70 years, but which I had better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse, so gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable, but it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is the precisely correct term for what that would be. Now, um, does that resonate with you at all? Um, this week I was talking with a friend and um, I was talking with a friend about uh, how I feel like I'm, I'm often like guarded, I'm reluctant to, um, to be 
my real self or to allow people to see my real self, especially like uh, in a new relationship or some getting to know somebody I don't know very well. And, um, and he said, why is that? I said, I think the honest truth is because I'm afraid that people will find out that I'm really a jerk. Um, and um, he, he said, so I'm, I'm trying to like not reveal myself um, because I don't want anybody to find out that I'm really a jerk. He said, why are you afraid of being a jerk? He said, maybe you actually are. <laughs> I'm like, this is helpful. <laughs> like, maybe you really are a jerk. Like, why would that be the end of the world for people to, um, to discover that, for people to know that you're really a jerk? And I, I was thinking about this, and I, I'm saying, well, like, maybe I'm just a little bit of a jerk now, but that's the thing I'm trying to, like, keep down and not let people know. But what if that grows and grows and grows, and what if... I mean, I have a history of Alzheimer's in my family, and what if I lose the ability to, um, to sort of hide the true me, the real me, the awful me from other people? Or what if it grows and grows and grows to uh, the extent that I hurt people and that I ruin relationships? And I'm describing this, you know, the jerk in me getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and he said, that sounds like hell. He's, what he's saying is me living with the awareness that I'm always trying to hide the fact that I think I'm a jerk sounds like hell. And um, that extended into eternity is what the Bible says is hell. Um, this is probably a good place to say this, but... Um, what the Bible says, I mean, why does the Bible use the metaphor of fire when it talks about hell? If it's just a metaphor, and it's a metaphor for something worse, why does the Bible use that metaphor? It's because that is a raging fire is what it feels like is in me when I'm terrified of the, real, of the person that I might actually be. And a hell is that fire that I'm trying to quench, or it, or it kind of erupts, and I... <sighs> And kind of blow it out a little bit here and there. Like that beginning to rage out of control and destroy not just me, but the things around me. That is what hell is like. That is what hell would be like. Hell is not a place where God is like, we have this image that God is like dangling people over a fiery pit and going, are you going to believe? Are you going to believe? Are you going to believe? No. And he lets you go. And on the way down, people are like, I'm sorry. And he's like, suckers, it's too late. That is not what the Bible says about God. Hell is basing your life on anything, even a good thing. It's looking to someone or something, an awful thing or a good thing, and saying, that is what I need to bring my life meaning, significance, or fulfillment or satisfaction extended into eternity. One of the things that I often hear as I talk to people in Orange County, um, as, I, as I just kind of think about what, what is it like to live here, I think one of the common experiences that many of us wrestle with is this sense of unfulfilled longing. Um, that, that um, you know, my job, I'm like, you know, I'm six months away from kind of being where I want to be in my life. Um, 
my job, my kids, my house, you know, okay, this, it's okay, but I'm going to upgrade in a few years, and then I will really be satisfied. And um, there's nothing wrong, there's nothing wrong with those desires, but often those desires lead us uh, to work and work and work and work and work. Um, because we think that if we put in the time, we put in the effort, we put in the, the, the efforts, that like those things will become a reality and then we will be satisfied. And there's nothing wrong with having a job or wanting kids to be happy or owning a house, obviously. Those are all good things. But when we build our lives around them, the reality is they will never satisfy us. Um, I mean, can you imagine something more foolhardy than saying, I will know I'm a good person if my children always appreciate and love me? I mean, <laughs> that's crazy, right? Um, children, by definition, almost. Uh, I mean, you, kids are great, but you think that, like, the, the, the most common experience a parent has is sacrifice, okay? So I'm constantly living this life of sacrifice, expecting that that's what's going to bring me meaning and significance. Or... Um, I cannot imagine a more hellish experience than waking up every morning for hundreds and hundreds and thousands and millions of years, getting those emails from Zillow or Redfin that say like, there's a new house for sale. Like your neighbors just upgraded. They're redoing their kitchen. Are you kidding me? Like, can you imagine? That, that would be hell for me, living with that, the raging fire of somebody else's perfect kitchen. Hell is building an identity on anything other than God. Your looks, your need to be needed, your competence. Um, you know, some of us are super willing to help other people, but don't you dare offer to help me, right? I'm not a person that needs to be helped. Your job, your status, your, your reputation. Hell is building your identity on anything other than God. Times infinity. At the end of the day, there is no one in hell who doesn't ultimately choose to be there. C.S. Lewis has all kinds of places where he talks about hell, but he's always talking about hell, the doors of hell being locked from the inside. Uh, there's no one in hell who at the end of the day doesn't uh, choose to be there. How do you know that? Well, look at this passage. Um, the rich man asks for a lot of things. Comfort me. Make Lazarus do my bidding. Uh, send Lazarus to talk to my brothers. No. Um, please, if somebody raises from the dead and then they'll believe. What's the one thing the rich man never actually asks for? He never says, please, could you let me out of hell? Um, the experience of hell, the Bible would lead us to believe, is like the child who refuses, absolutely refuses to be comforted. Now, if you don't know what that's like, stop by my house almost any time, and one of our four kids will be experiencing it very shortly. We've already had it once this morning, and they usually get over it. But hell is full of people who know God, who know that he is loving, and they hate him for it. And that's horrible. That is awful. Tim Keller puts it like this. In short, hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. Okay, that's what this passage shows us about ourselves. But secondly, what does hell teach us about God? So we have to start by seeing what hell teaches us about ourselves because if we don't see that awful 
reality and the capacity that each of us has to really live ourselves into hell, then the good news doesn't feel like that good a news. Uh, which is the real you, the best possible version or the one that comes out under pressure? Um, you know, I know it's really common for us to think, like, God's a God of love and surely he'll accept us all. But, like, do you really believe that? Um, I'm terrified of who I can become. And when we see that the real me and the real truth is that in each of us there is this fire that threatens to rage and burn out of control and destroy us, then we can see this, that hell teaches us what it really means to know that there is a God of love. If you ask anybody today, they will tell you, I believe that if there's a God, that he is a God of love. That is, a, um, that is not a self-evident fact, just as an aside. That is a result of 2,000 years of the influence of Christianity in, in the world that um, leads people to think that the common sense view is that God is a God of love. But if somebody says to you, um, I believe that God is a God of love, and you were to ask them in return, what did it cost your God to love you? The answer is, well, nothing. He just, he just loves me. Okay, think about what is the first thing a parent does as an act of love? Like, what is the primary experience? I already talked about this, but what is the primary experience of a parent for the child that they love? It's sacrifice, right? You give up your sleep. You give up your time. You give up your money. You give up your sanity. You give up any hope for cleanliness. You give up everything that is precious and important to you. You give up your free time. Why? Because you love your kids, right? And any of us would look at a parent who says, I have no time for sacrifice for my kids and say, whoa, that is a, like, that's a problem, right? Of, like, it's against the law. I mean, it results in things that are against the law anyway. If you were to look at a parent who was unwilling to sacrifice anything for their kids, you'd, concern, you'd conclude that that parent truly only loves themselves. Because true love always requires sacrifice. And a God who loves you without any cost doesn't really love you. But the Bible's teaching on hell shows us that God is a God of love because it shows us what he was willing to sacrifice in order to love you. There's this curious exchange at the end of the parable. Did you notice this? That the rich man says, Well, send Lazarus, if you can't cool my thirst, at least send Lazarus to my brothers. I have five brothers and send Lazarus to go and warn them. And, uh, and, and the response is, no, they have, Abraham, or they have Moses and the prophets, right? Which is kind of shorthand for the Bible. Like, let them read the Bible. And, uh, and the rich man says, no, they won't listen to the Bible. But if, if somebody comes back from the dead and tells them, you know, then they will believe. And you would think that like there's a certain logic about that. If somebody raises from the dead and says, hey, guess what? Hell is real. You'd be like, got it. Okay? Now what do I need to do to make sure I don't go there? But what Jesus is saying, I mean, what does it make you think of when, when um, the response is, uh, even if someone rises from the dead, they will not be convinced. I mean, that, like, those words on the lips of Jesus has got to remind us of Jesus, right? Jesus raised from the dead. And Jesus is saying that even that will not convince people that hell is real. 
Um, I, I just did a quick search this morning. I don't know how accurate this is, but it, you know, it's gotta be close. Um, according to the Google, three quarters of Americans believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, according to something I found on the internet, it's, it's clearly over half of Americans believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead. And they are not convinced, right? Uh, I quoted this on Easter. There is an atheist professor who said, you know, I looked into the evidence. Uh, there's as much historical reason to believe that Jesus rose from the dead as any other historical events. But it doesn't mean I follow him. I don't believe he's my Lord and Savior. The world's a weird place and sometimes strange things happen. Um, Jesus himself is saying, even if someone raises from the dead, still they won't be convinced. Convinced of what? Because I just told you that three quarters of Americans are convinced that he physically rose from the dead. Someone comes back from the dead and says, there's really a hell. Most people would immediately say, okay, I believe you. What should I do to not go there? But they're they not convinced because all that, they would, um, all that that does for us is sort of change the way our self-interest operates. In fear, we say, okay, there really is a hell. Now I know that I don't want to go there. What do I need to do to make sure I don't go to hell? And so my concern is still myself, ultimately. And concern for myself, an identity built around concern for myself extended into eternity, we've already said. It's hell. Fear of hell will never keep you out of hell. What Jesus is saying here is this. You have to read Moses and the prophets. You have to read the Bible because you, without them, you will never understand why Jesus rose from the dead. You might believe that he rose from the dead, but it won't change your heart because fear can never change your heart. If you don't understand why Jesus rose from the dead, then the resurrection is just like a magic trick. It's just a proof. See, it really happened. And the fear of hell will never keep you out of hell. Fear can never change you. If you want to be transformed, only love can do that. If you read the Bible, then you'll see why. Isaiah 53 talks about becoming before Jesus, the Messiah who would come. And it says, surely it was the will of God to crush him. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. So if you read the Bible, you understand that Jesus went, that Jesus embraced hell in order to set us free as a sacrifice, as a sign of his love for us. On the cross, Jesus took on himself the raging fire that burns in each of us. Uh, the Apostles' Creed, one of the earliest summary statements of uh, the beliefs of the Christian church says, talking about Jesus, it says, he was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell. And the third day he rose again. We actually sang the song, I Believe. But the lyric has changed. It says he descended into darkness. There's been a lot of con confusion uh, about what does that mean when it says that Jesus descended into hell. On the cross, he took on himself the ugliness, the horror, the shame 
that results in a life that is built on anything other than God himself. And as he does so, Jesus loses the Father's face, and God the Father turns his back on Jesus for the first time in all of eternity. Jesus is literally experiencing hell. The presence of God without the love of God. And what we see on the cross in the death of Jesus is that Jesus is experiencing hell, that Jesus is in your hell. Jesus literally goes through hell for you. And three days later, he rises again in glory as a sign that God has accepted his sacrifice on your behalf. Fear of hell will never save you from hell. Only love can transform you. Only love will transform you and quench, because love has the power to quench that fire in you that says, if I don't have a name, if people don't recognize me, if my reputation is not being upheld, if people, you know, if I don't live a life of comfort, only fear can quench the, that fire that rages in, in each of us. Only love will change you. And you'll only know God's love when you see Jesus' sacrifice. He went through hell, literally, for you. The sacrifice shows you the love, and that's what will transform you. During the English Civil War, um, which was fought between the parliamentarians, the you know, uh, people in favor of democracy, and the supporters of the king, the royalists, Oliver Cromwell was Lord Protector of England, and during the war, they caught a traitor, a young man. They caught a traitor, and they, he was sentenced to be executed. He was sentenced to be shot for his crimes, and the execution was to take place that evening at the ringing of the curfew bell. And so as the sunlight began to fade, the scene was set, the execution squad was there, the, the uh, young soldier, the traitor, was before the firing squad. And the light faded and faded and faded and darkness came. And the curfew never rang. And so Oliver Cromwell sent uh, someone, a messenger to the church to figure out why the church bell hadn't rung. And when he got to the church, he discovered that what had happened is that this young man was engaged to be married. And his fiance had gone to the church and had climbed up into the bell tower and had wrapped herself around the clapper in this massive cast iron bell and held on to it. And the church sexton was old and deaf and he went and he pulled on the rope for a little while and he got tired and he went home and because he was deaf, deaf he didn't know that it didn't make a sound. And so when the soldier got to the church, he saw this young woman bruised and battered coming down out of the church steeple. And he brought her back to Oliver Cromwell. And Oliver Cromwell, being moved by this act of love and sacrifice, his heart was touched, and he said, your lover shall live because of your sacrifice. Curfew shall not ring tonight. It was that woman's Love for her fiance that put a stop to violence. Her love made so clear in her sacrifice set her fiance free from the hellish violence of his own execution. And that is just a small picture of the love of Jesus poured out for his people on the cross. 
Only love will change you. And love is always made known in sacrifice. Most Americans believe that if there's a God, he will surely welcome the vast majority of us into heaven. It's our right, it's our privilege. Most of us Americans, not that I'm assuming everybody in the room is an American, but most Americans believe that if there is a hell, it's really, really hard to get into it. But what the Bible tells us is that each of us has the innate inclination towards hell. And it took an act of God, literally, an act of God in order to save us from hell. The Bible shows us the awful reality of hell and that each of us, apart from divine intervention, our identity extended into eternity is hell. But in doing so, it also shows us the depth, the overwhelming depth of God's love for us. And I think that should do two things for us. Far from making us intolerant or exclusive or narrow-minded or abusive or violent, the first thing it has to do is it has to humble us. Nobody in this room, nobody on this planet avoids hell because you deserve it. It took an act of God, something our insurance policies won't cover, to save us from hell. None of us deserves it. None of us earned it. And so there is absolutely no place uh, for a sense of superiority, right? Uh, The Bible teaches, what the Bible says about hell teaches us to be humble. But also it should motivate us with compassion to move towards others, to move towards those who are vulnerable, to move towards those who do not yet know that Jesus has come to save us from hell. This is the awful, beautiful reality. Hell shows us that each of us has a horrible potential within us. And yet God, because of his great love for us, he loved us enough to come and to save us. We pray with me. God, thank you for this awful, wonderful passage. And God, I I just pray um, that anyone hearing this this morning or anyone listening on the podcast would not make the foolish mistake of the rich man and asking for anything other than to know you and to be saved from hell. God, would you humble us? Would you help us to know the depth of your love for us because you have sacrificed more than we could ever imagine in Jesus? And would the reality of both the reality of hell but also the goodness of your love move us, motivate us, to not be complacent would it motivate us to move towards others who have not yet heard that Jesus has come to show us the depth of your love would you do that in us in Jesus name Amen